So now we are up to number 214, class number 52. So it looks like over 100 to finish this book. The subject of the master's horoscope bears a little contemplation. He used to say, don't let the karmic tendencies described in your horoscope, no matter how valid the prediction, enslave you to anything that your will rejects. The prediction made by our family astrologer was accurate according to the stellar positions, but that didn't mean I had to accept it as a cosmic dictate. A further question is likely to arise in the mind about that prediction, Swami writes. Why would the horoscope of a master predict anything so different from his actual destiny? The answer, I can't help thinking, is that one must be born at some time, simply to be born at all. No timing probably will ever be perfect, The planets move as they move without paying any particular attention to anyone. Our actions, however, can be determined by our own will, despite what our horoscope says. The will, especially when it arises from deep within, is our real writ of destiny. That is the destiny we should follow, seeking ever to attune our human will to God's infinite will. Another explanation certainly is valid also. For a liberated master is reborn not to expiate karma of his own, but to take on and to free others of their own karmic burdens. It may be that in his very horoscope are written some of the burdens of others. Fascinating thoughts that Swami has. You know, the whole um, section in Raja Yoga, it's two chapters in Raja Yoga called Spiritual Anatomy, and it it delineates the relationship between the horoscope and the planets and the chakras. It took me many, many rounds over that class before I could even begin to get the picture. But what he's writing there, what Swami's writing, is that each of the chakras has a ruling planet and relates to a sign of the zodiac. I'll refer you all to the Raja Yoga course because I'm not going to put up the chart and explain what it says. But there, there is a, the way Swami writes it is that in, in ancient, ancient higher ages, the science of astrology and the science of yoga were the same science. Because it, what we're, we're looking at is we're looking at the outward manifestation of the inner realities. And this is where the planetary and the zodiac, as it relates to each of the chakras, means that you, you have certain karmic pattern within you And you choose the exact moment to be born when everything in the external universe, the vibrations of those physical objects, corresponds to the vibrations of your karmic reality. Now, every one of us has these compelling karmic realities stored in the chakras. That's what the vrittis are. Vrittis are unresolved energies that create a, a, a center point of attachment and limited self-identification and then creates a vortex of energy based around that. We have a great desire for a happy home. We have a great desire you know, for the freedom of, of wealth. We have a passionate desire to have a healthy, strong body. Whatever it might be, built up over many experiences, that center point of desire and attachment which can also be negative, resentment and revenge, whatever it might be, but there's some point of 
self-identity we're holding on to, and a whirlpool of energy around it. That's what the word vritti is. It means whirlpool. So they vibrate. And that's why we can't raise our kundalini energy because I mean, we can't, it's not free, all of it, because it's being used to sustain all those vrittis of karma. And depending on which chakra it is, relates to a planet. There's a, a ruling planet. It relates to a sign of the zodiac. So where the intensity of that energy is, you're going to be able to see it here. I mean, it just speaks to the interrelated nature of the universe to a stunning degree. But a master has no karma. He, you know, all of us are born because we have to, but a master has no karma. In the Christian tradition, that's been translated to sin because karma is simply unlearned lessons. It, the karma is the distance we are from perfect understanding. Sin is a, an unfriendly word for it, but it's, it means that we're, we're off-center to that extent. But a master isn't. The master has no vrittis. My experience of Swami Kriyananda, I don't think he had any vrittis. He said as much to me in one context, but then sort of repudiated it just a little bit because he put it in the context of that his subconscious mind was exactly the same as his conscious mind. He said when, you know, we're sleeping, dreaming, he's, there's, there's never any variation. And when I spoke to him about that, I said, well, sir, that, what you're saying is that there's no there's no other reality than the reality that you're fully aware of. And he said, yes. But when I put it like that into the book that I wrote about him, he made me modify it. He said, it just wasn't, he said, I said, but you said it, sir. He said, yes. He said, but it shouldn't be said by me. I said, well, I'm saying it, but I'm quoting you. You're right. So, so we, we didn't print it. But he didn't repudiate it. He just said it wasn't to be said by him. He didn't want to be quoted. But my observation of him was that nothing interfered with dharma. I mean, and I watched that for a really long time. And what interferes with dharma, for me, certainly, dharma meaning a perfection of God's will, is vrittis. They come in and they frighten me and they agitate me and they cause me to react and they remind me of what I might lose or what I want. And as a consequence, the straight line of my intention gets a little wobbly. I, I actually observed... I'm, I'm digressing, but not that much. I remember when I was very first beginning to counsel people a lot, especially after I started living here, and that was I was really then in contact. I'd been in contact with a lot of people, but it was we really became accelerated. And I, I saw how many times people were so sincere, just really deeply sincere. And when you look in their eyes, you see this tremendous uh, desire for God and a great purity of intention. And, and they would express um, that, you know, and their commitment to that. But it would be like they would start out from here to go straight, but the vrittis would grab them and they would end up here. And sometimes it, what was so interesting to me is that the person himself or herself didn't even realize that because that flow of energy was so instinctive and so natural to them only watching it from the outside um, could I see that even though this is what, what, they're, what, they're, what I really felt what their heart wanted, the riches just took them over to here. And that's why I'm saying when I watched Swami Kriyananda, there, there was never any, um, nothing ever happened that wasn't exactly what he intended. 
Whereas much happens with me that I don't intend because I get swept up. And I certainly have seen it in others. It made me very sympathetic to realize how unconscious all that movement is. Whoever That's the fun thing about being ourselves. Whoever we are, we're so familiar, it seems natural. It seems natural to be like this. <laughs> it's family, it's karma, it's culture, whatever it is. I know Swamiji told me years ago before I myself had, I don't even think I had a passport at that point. I'd, I'd never been out of the country. I didn't get a passport until I was in my early 30s. And uh, I, I, that's when I used it. I got it and used it. And uh, he said that when you're in Europe or another place where you see lots of different nationalities that don't necessarily, aren't necessarily identifiable by skin color or, or dress, he said, you can tell before they speak who they are. And I, I was one of those things he said to me that I, I just was very, very skeptical about. He, and he said, and then I started traveling and I just, Darned if it wasn't true. You could reckon, we can always recognize the Americans. I mean, after 9-11, they advised people, Americans who traveled, who, were, who could be targets. They said Americans travel around the planet at that time in white athletic shoes, and they suggested that we stop wearing them. <laughs> you know, middle-aged or older travelers who want comfortable shoes. What you bought then was these white tr- track shoes. Now they're different. But they said that that just identifies you as Americans. Don't do that. But it, somehow Americans have this, what Swami called, this kind of exuberant puppy dog kind of energy. But you can find them. But, uh, but then Swami just said what was so interesting was he said, but then he said there are people that you have absolutely no idea where they come from because they are so much themselves. Most people are a reflection of how they were raised in their culture. But then you meet individuals and they're absolutely themselves completely independent of it. It's a very interesting comment. Um, Now, coming all the way back to the horoscope, so masters, certainly, there were no vrittis. So if there's no vrittis and there's no karma, then there is no, um, there's nothing in his individualized soul nature that demands anything. So he can only be... uh, carrying out the horoscope of his mission. But this is what Swami says, that the horoscope indicates the burdens of others. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? I mean, that he would, you could be born at a particular challenge in time. Swami Kriyananda himself, I, again, I don't understand astrology, but everyone said, all the astrologers, they had an extremely challenging horoscope. That everything was uh, like this against itself. Whatever the words would be to say that, and he, um, you know, his life was uh, intensely active. So why would there be that much obstacles except for the tapasya required in order to get a great work started? It, it's, it's all very, very interesting. But the Master's, you know, emphasis about, um, oh, and even him saying, Master saying that the horoscope was accurate according to the planetary placements, but it wasn't accurate for his own destiny because he had his own divine will. So it, it, the stars are impersonal. They just sort of make a statement. I, I, the sermon that I gave a few weeks ago where I talked about the backdrop of the world versus the individual destiny of the soul. 
So the heavens are certainly the backdrop against which our individual destiny. But Swami emphasizes here, and so does Master, is there an autobiography of a yogi where he burns his horoscope and puts the ashes outside his brother's room? Did you have a question? To some extent, uh, all of us also carry genetic material from family members, and so you carry fa familial karma that way. So, for example, alcoholics tend to have offsprings who are genetically predisposed to being alcoholics, and yeah. a behavior will trigger that, and then they... So I think that to, to some extent, like you'd mentioned, that we carry karma, mm -hmm. uh, mastered it for others, and we ourselves, for our own familial line somewhere carry that karma and, and we can actually overcome that but but we do have it in us like a potential energy that that may release right. in some it's way true. although I'm inclined you see genetic material is entirely dependent on the physical body that you're in at least nobody's ever tried to tell me that in the astral world you have genetics I mean it's subtle but still, it's about the physical body, because once you don't have that physical body, you don't have the DNA. Am I, am I wrong in this? This is true. So therefore, it's only a physical manifestation, which means that your soul chooses that. Rather than it determining your destiny, you choose it to be part of your destiny, um, but you wouldn't have chosen it if your soul wasn't already inclined that way. I know people try to say that you're bound by that, but it, it, you're, you're, you're only bound by it because you've chosen to be bound by it. So the law of karma is still above that. There's nothing that can be above the law of karma because the law of karma is unrelated to the incarnation. I mean, it's independent of the incarnation. It uses the incarnation to express itself. But the, but, so so it, it chooses the DNA rather than the DNA forcing the karma. I, I mean, I've heard people talk about it, but to me that just seems like it has to be that way, because it's non-physical. Well, I'm not sure if what I'm going to say is, an is, is in the, on the same lines. You can maybe clarify if this mm -hmm. is in line with Master's teachings or not. Because the Hindu scriptures talk about the price of a human birth, mm -hmm. about how the price of a human birth is the familial karma. So every human birth that we go through comes with a price, and the price we pay is to experience. I don't want to no, go no, into go that ahead. detail. And uh, the way I generally tend to understand it is also I read another exchange with a different saint. You can clarify if this is in line with what Master spoke about, who talks about um, seven generations of family members before and after being liberated. And he talks about how when somebody is doing spiritual effort, that's why their family is affected, because the familial karma that you're carrying, when you release it, you're not releasing it for yourself in your DNA, but in a subtle astral level, that those same familial karma is being released for seven, because even scientifically speaking, the DNA can be identified only seven generations before and after. So there's a certain, like, the saint asks, this disciple is asking this, his guru, what is this thing about seven generations that these mm -hmm. Hindu scriptures talk about? What, this seven generations, this number seven seems random, and they are in a horse breeding ground, like in a, in a race course. And he turns to this person and asks, how many generations does it take for you to call a horse purebred? 
and this person says seven. <laughs> so there's a, a physical... Okay, but let's work with this for a minute. Um, I know Master said seven generations on either side are liberated when a soul is liberated. I mean, either side, back, backwards and forwards. Swamiji found that just weird and interesting. I mean, as a young disciple... And he said to Master, well, what about the disciples? And Master laughingly said, oh, they come first. Meaning that the relationship between disciples and the guru is far, transcends the family. Um, I just can't imagine how being liberated can affect DNA, because DNA is physical and liberation has nothing to do with it. And all of that, with all due respect, sounds like a whole bunch of the karma that Indians get, God bless you, when uh, that they just want to make the family the religion. And it just sounds a little too convenient to me to put on you that you've got to marry and you've got to have sons and you've got to do this and you've got to do what I want, my grandparents want, and everybody wants, which is uh, not always in any way relation to what's spiritually valid. It's just what they want. And scripture tends to be reinterpreted according to what the priests or the minister or the clergyman or the whoever it is wants to the politics of the situation. So, however, you know, just that comment about the horses <laughs> tells you that there's just these fascinating edges here. Now, about it being the price of a human body, well, I mean, that's a funny, it's an interesting phrase, but another way to say it is the whole material world is kind of a drag. And, and there's no question that there's, there's individual karma and there's group karma. I mean, what we're talking about there is exactly what he's talking about with his horoscope. He was born and the planets pushed in a certain direction and his parents did their best and his brother did his best to act out that horoscope and Master had to stand strong even... Is it in this section, or was it last time, when the, the beautiful bride was presented, and for just a second he thought, wouldn't it be nice? You know, so it was just like there was just that moment, and then he, he looked through her skin and saw all her bloody organs and her bones and realized that the beauty wasn't really so terrific after all. But the pressure was there, and that was certainly familial karma, which was the desire for his family to have him stay right in the, in the group. Um, but it's, it's still, it's all, it's all the karmic vibrations, and it only manifests physically. But the price of a human body is that you are born somewhere, and you just get with what comes with it. I love the way Swami wrote it in the path. Um, I think I mentioned this already, but just to repeat it, remind you, he says in the first chapter of the path, he describes his grandparents and his father on both sides of the family, who they were, what they did. I mean, he spends quite a bit of time on that. And then he says, I believe, I didn't say I believe, I was born fully myself. I describe this to tell you what I chose to associate myself with. Which I think is exactly right. This is what I choose to associate myself with, which is another way of saying this is the karma of this incarnation for me. But when you take that and make it this giant you know, inescapable. It's the same as saying your horoscope. You, have, you said you have to marry three times, that's it. This is a family of shoemakers. You have to be a shoemaker. This is a family in which everyone gets married. You have to get married. 
You know, it's like, how convenient. It's just too convenient for me to... Um, I, I, I would be arrogant to disregard it, but there's a tone in it that tells me that I think if we could understand it better, it would get more subtle. Yeah. Does that, is that fair? Okay. Uh, what? Go ahead. I was going to say the seven generations forward and back, they don't say when. So at some point they will be liberated. Well, Swamiji, which it, means almost nothing. Well, yeah, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like saying no, but it means more than that. I mean, I'll say it exactly because I saw it in my own parents. I saw my parents be uplifted in ways that I cannot quantify and that did not manifest as kriya or anything like that. But um, nonetheless, I saw it manifest. They were blessed. My grandparents are dead, so I have no idea, and I hardly knew them. And I have no children, so I can't look at any of them. But I saw it, so I believe it. Well, but but they get they get a little upliftment. Yes. As Swami Swami's way of saying it, he said, when someone who becomes the emperor, the whole family raises in status. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they all become the emperor, but everybody gets a little elevated from it. So it you know it's hard to understand. But that's a, that's a good justification for two things. One is um, defying your family. That was how Swami put it to us when we were in our 20s and our parents were not so happy about what we were doing. We are trying to bring us home for Christmas. And I mean, that's when I was really happy to be Jewish. But a lot of people, Swami just said, you know, don't go and have a worldly Christmas. You stay here and have a spiritual one. Go for New Year's, go for Thanksgiving, but you stay here for Christmas. He said, Master, never let them go home for Christmas. Home. And then he said, if you make spiritual progress, your parents will be blessed. He said, so even if they're not happy, you're doing, their souls rejoice. Those were his words. And so that was a comfort when people had to defy their um, parental expectations. And in, in the book I wrote about Swami Kriyananda, this was actually a man in India, but Swamiji urged upon this young man a rather radical spiritual step. And he said, oh, but if I do that, my mother will be so disappointed. What Swami actually said is, sooner or later, we all have to disappoint our mothers. But he, he asked me to change that. to we have, we have to all be prepared to sooner or later disappoint our mothers. <laughs> but it was emphatic. And he didn't disappoint his mother. Yes, go ahead. This is completely mm-hmm. a different thread. But I also wanted to share. Uh, I had a friend who was an older man many years back, and he was uh, very devoted to a different spiritual path. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, I was interested in astrology, and I was—I somehow thought he would be interested. And I was discussing some things with him, and he almost stated in a naive, matter-of-fact way, "I wish I had a horoscope, but I have a spiritual path." So I was initiated by my guru, and at the moment of initiation, my horoscope just ceased to exist. Right. <laughs> so I wish I had a horoscope like you do, <laughs> but I just don't. <laughs> well, actually, he's telling the truth. He's, that's exactly—I mean—that's a wonderful way to say it. Um, uh, Swami put it in a slightly different way. He didn't speak of the horoscope, but but it is true. You can see why that's true. He said uh, that Master said, you know, karma is inexorable unless you have a a master, and then it can be anything at all because the master can just come in and change it. So, yeah, that's right. You don't really have a horoscope once you become a disciple. That's a perfect way to think about it. But that just, you know, gives the, the lie to all the, everything that you say, DNA and family, everything, it's all dissolved once you have a guru. 
I mean, there's a story which is coming up about Shankaracharya and Babaji, too. I will always use that as my reference point because of how consistent I find the scriptures and not just the interpretation that others give uh-huh. on how karma works with yeah. family and the ties that are, but also scriptures talk about this yeah. fact that the Guru's grace is completely on a different level. Exactly. So I find it very consistent yes, <laughs> in my own it. spiritual life to look at it in that way. Well, that's actually true. And you know, you're raising a very good point there, which I, I really think is worth mentioning. Scriptures are written on many different levels. And for many people, I used to be much more indifferent to family ties, is the way I would put it. But then I really began to appreciate that for many, many, many people, the family tie is the inescapable necessity to relate to the reality of others and often to overcome selfishness. And, and so to not respect that tie is to really not respect the potential spiritual training that that represents. So a certain amount of that strong emphasis on the importance of family and, you know, the inescapability and the necessity depends on where you are on the, on the scale. Because if your alternative to that is selfishly living for yourself, you're going to do a lot better to be tied to your family. If your alternative to that is to really seek God, then you're going to... It, it, so it all just depends on where you are. And so the many different levels of Scripture... You can read it differently every time. That's exactly the truth. I was going to tell you a story. Just this, I was listening to this old recording. I really don't know when it was. It was one of Ananda's anniversaries, 10, 20 years. Like it, let's see. It could have been the late 70s. It might have been a little later than that, but not much. And this man, this gentleman named Santosh, who's not the Santosh that is part of this community, but Santosh O'Hara, and he, I'm just going to tell the whole story. This, the last part of it's about his mother, but the first part was so funny. Everybody was just standing up, telling different funny stories about the early years. Santosh said he, when he arrived very, very early, like the first winter 19... He moved in 1970. And he just talked about... Um, the first thing was that there were a lot of signs places everywhere that said private, private, private. And then they, they all said private, residence only. And they were all signed by someone named Shanti. <laughs> he thought he thought Chanti was some really important person who was telling everybody to do this and do that. He didn't realize what that it was just the word peace. <laughs> but then he just ignored one of those and he went down. He just wa- walked down this long way and he came way out in the middle of nowhere. There was a teepee and it was summertime. There was a teepee. There was a man who turned out to be Benai, who was one of the early men, uh, people there. There was a man sitting out in full lotus meditating in the sun, totally naked, which he said he, he could handle all of that, except that he was totally nude, except he had earphones on. <laughs> and it was just too weird. He didn't know what to think. But anyway, he goes back. And then later on, he was the only son, uh, I think, of a, maybe his mother was either widowed or divorced, but he was very close with his mother, and his mother was real important to him. And... Uh, he was just so hoping she would like what he would do. And so he managed to finally build a house, one of those houses that you all still enjoy at the meditation retreat. He built it. I don't know which one now. And his mother came to visit, and he was up in the loft, and she was downstairs. And the visit got off to a bad start because he had been unable to close off the openings. The raccoons kept ripping the screens off. So all night long, the raccoons would walk through the living room and open the kitchen cabinets and take food out, which his mother did not enjoy. So the next day, um, 
Swami was giving a satsang, and he took his mother, you know, this is like really going to be it, and he put his mother right in front of her, him, and then Swami talked about, I think he talked about the esoteric relationship between the chakras and the planets and the horoscopes. I mean, it was just way out there, and his mother sitting right in front. After it was all done, she stood up, and in a very loud voice she said, hogwash! It's <laughs> <Something> like that. <laughs> They went off together. So he tells this story and everybody's laughing. He said, five years later, my mother was a Kriyabhan, meditating every day. How does it happen? Incredible, huh? She just, somehow or another, it just, his karma caught up with her. Incredible. You know, parents sacrifice so much for their children, which is really the truth. Um, that when their children do well, there, there is that enormous debt, just this incredible debt that goes backwards to your parents. That's why in the, you know, the laws of Moses, honor thy father and thy mother is so big. It's not uh, casual. As children, um, you don't understand until you see, either have your own children or see other people with children, and you realize what your poor parents went through and why they were so harried and so unspontaneous, and so unable to just pick up and go. It's because of you. You're the one who took all the life force out of them. <laughs> but anyway, there you have it. Um, there was another thing I wanted to say. Oh, I just wanted to, I wanted to tell just a story about a horoscope which was so fascinating to me. There was a, an Indian man, he was part of our school, uh, his family, his children were in our school, and he was a very successful self-made man in the valley here, like, like they are. And uh, he just, everything, he was a very, very good fellow. And at a certain point, he had a, a peripheral relationship with a man as a client who became the target, the, the, the appropriate target of some kind of a federal investigation for some kind of financial fraud. And because uh, our friend had a peripheral connection with this man, the investigation went through him and came into this man's company. And they just started after him. The FBI or the SEC or somebody really started after him and just really literally drove him to the ground. He held his company together as long as he could for the sake of all the people who were working for them. You know, sacrifice. He was very dharmic in it. But in the end, his company was just absolutely ruined. Um, and then, well, I won't, I won't quite tell the rest of this, but the, I mean, let me just say this correctly. Somehow after this, and I'll, t I'll tell you the, the punchline in a moment, his, he found a horoscope that his grandfather had had cast when he was born. And the horoscope says, you know, he'll be successful, he'll do this and he'll do this. On this day, he will be targeted by the government. And for two years, they will give him no peace and they will take everything away from him. And then it will be over. So then he tells us that his lawyers, everything was bleak. It was really going to go nowhere. They finally had a court date. They were going to go to it and just like, one or two days, on his birthday, suddenly the feds turn around and they drop the entire case and that was it. 
just like that. His horoscope says it will start on this day and it will end on your birthday two years later. Like, where does that stuff come from? You know, and then it, it, that's exactly what happened. Then he just went to work somewhere else and has rebuilt his life and everything has come back together. You, part, of you, part of you wants it to be true and part of you just can't bear for it to be true. Another friend of mine, part of Ananda, um, his horoscope said basically that on, on this day, November whatever it was of this certain year, your job will shift from what ministry to business. And on that day he was fired from something or let go from something and started his own business. It said you'll run your business for 18 years. He ran his business for 18 years. Maui Zowie. Um, Ramani has, wants a question. Well, the point of that also, from this perspective, is you have to put out continuous willpower because you don't want to just become a passive instrument in the hands of fate. You have to constantly be calling on God, but you don't want to just let your karma roll. And simultaneously, there's another thing that I find helpful, which is to realize that we are part of a greater reality and not everything is our fault. And, and we have to... Um, we have to move intelligently in the flow of energy. That's the only way I can think to put it. Master himself said he would choose inauspicious times. He would ask astrologers to give him the most inauspicious time and he would vow to, to accomplish anyway, but it would take more willpower to do it. So that's sort of the balance point that we have to understand. What Swamiji said, he said the distinction between um, positive thinking and wishful thinking. And he described it as wishful thinking is invading the enemy country with five soldiers hoping they won't be home when you cross the border. He said, and positive thinking is recognizing what you're really up against and then generating the dynamic will in order to face it. So I think having, I mean, one doesn't have to know one's horoscope, but one can also feel, you know, it's just, there's these forces. You can feel forces playing against you. And you can either be passive in the face of that, or you can recognize that this is really happening. And I, I went through a period of time when I, the way I put it was that my moon went into Hades, is what it felt like to me. <laughs> and I could feel this, oh, it's like malefic. I could feel this malefic energy just outside my aura that was always just trying to freak me out. And I was, I was aware of it as a... Uh, an actual force that wasn't, that I didn't have to relate to, but required that I had to be much more vigilant than I would normally be because I, I wasn't usually having that malefic energy around me. Does that make sense? I mean, I think that's just, to just deny it is untrue, um, to slavishly accept it. In both the cases that I talked about, the stories I just told, it was all afterwards that they heard that. It was more like afterwards, this is what was said to them, and it was just like, oh my goodness, there it was. It just happened just like it was said. Yes. Um. Just what you were saying was reminding me of the Brigu and Agastya readings, which are uh, astrological. Um, they go, I mean, Brigu readings, and the, I don't know that much about the Agastya ones, but the Brigu readings were, pardon me? I was going to say that it goes way beyond astrology. But. Yeah, Treta Yuga. Well, it has to be a, a power way beyond that because 
it just, uh, I don't see how you could be that effective. It's, too, it's much more than astrology. Yeah, I know that they, it, it all gets, we don't know what they were doing, I guess is the only thing we could say. We, we don't know how to do it yet. It, they, I just read in the, somewhere that they're discovering pyramids in Antarctica. So, I mean, there's just lots of things going on that we don't know anything about. <laughs> Go ahead. They were aware uh, they were transcending time and they were in the center of your sphere that you often talk about. Yeah. They were able to get their consciousness mm-hmm. there and then they could see anything. And from right. that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. How you get there is another question. Well, yeah, astrology, again, is just, well, it's physical, but it's the physical, it's the, it's the you are a part of all that is. You just, you, like the family karma, you, you need this, and so you find it. Swami Kriyananda wanted to be, you know, part of something, and this is what he chose to be part of it. You have to take a body somewhere. I mean, once in the conversation with Swami, he said, well, yogi has to take a body somewhere, and, it, and often where the yogi, this is also slightly connected to that, often for the yogi, where they take their body, they, he said to me, you deliberately take a body that doesn't bring much karma with it. Like you'll, you'll incarnate into a family where you don't have very strong uh, attachments and involvement because that is not your intention. Your intention is completely different and you want to be free to be able to pursue your real intention. So you, you don't want them to be very attached to you and you don't want to be very attached to them. And you don't want to have any debts. So you'll just, and, and even phrase, use the phrase once, you'll take a body anywhere you can just because you need to get going again. And you're just not going to be that picky because that's not your main story. So that's another answer to that. Yes? I was just, my intention in making that comment was more to try to get an idea about the authors of the uh, Brigu or Agastya readings. Uh, how do they find these things out? And it just occurred to me that they got them, put themselves, the writers of these readings, uh, put themselves uh, in a place that, uh, uh, beyond time. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so they could see anything at any time that anybody ever did past, future, and the whole thing, and they just wrote it down. Yes, exactly. They were beyond the delusion of time. Yeah, which is a lot more than astrology. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Fascinating. Extremely interesting. Let me see if there's anything else. Okay. Number 215. The Master told this little-known story of the meeting between Swami Shankaracharya and Babaji, whom Shankaracharya eventually accepted as his guru. In other places, Swamiji has raised the very serious thought that Master might have been Shankaracharya. And it was also proposed that uh, Sri Yukteswar was. Swami talked about it once, Shankaracharya, in terms of how much of it, uh, the devotional poetry that he wrote. I myself, just as a, a sidelight, in Jyotima, Jyotima? Joshimat, just uh, 7,000 feet compared to 12,000 feet where Bhadrinath is. It's where they bring the Bhadrinath uh, deity during the winter snows. We were on our way to Bhadrinath. I think it was the first time. Yeah, the first time. And the road was closed by a landslide. So we had to spend a couple of nights there, at least a full night longer than we expected. And there's Shankaracharya's ashram is right there, and 
this underground cave where he, the tree above and the underground cave below. And I never had really, I didn't even know it was there because we were on our way to Badrinath. This was a pilgrimage we were leading and our, we had a program. And the program was to go to Badrinath. So, but when we had this extra day, we had to, so we, we went into this ashram. And I don't, I don't really have a lot of odd experiences but when I walked onto the grounds of that ashram, it was so, I felt so at home and extremely happy. Just there was this enormous positive familiarity to that place. And then when we went down to the area where Shankaracharya had meditated, and it was, I was quite astonished by it. Later when Swami, I was telling Swami about it and he speculated about Master and Shankaracharya. I said, all I can say, sir, is it sure felt like home to me. And I'd never thought about it before, ever. Um, so it's interesting. And of course, Babaji is Master's Guru. So it, it's an interesting thought. So, and then Master's telling the story. Babaji was living in a home in Benares when Shankaracharya visited that city. Shankara was at that time a famous astrologer. Babaji's manservant went, therefore, to see him. He received from Shankara the shocking news that, that very night, it was his destiny to die. In fear and trembling on his return, he approached Babaji with the news. Go back, said Babaji, and say to him that you will not die tonight. I love this. The servant then, you know, he goes, the servant then carried this reply back to Swami Shankara, who affirmed, this karma is so fixed that should you survive it, I shall go to your master and ask him to accept me as his disciple. That night, a terrible thunderstorm lashed the city. Lightning struck everywhere. It felled trees all around the house where Babaji lived. The great master stretched himself out over the servant's body to protect him. When morning came, the servant was still alive. He then went and presented himself to Shankara. The Swami was amazed, realizing that he had encountered a power much greater than his own. He went to Babaji and took initiation into Kriya Yoga. That's such a marvelous story. How would master know that story? And talk about um, the Guru's protection. Can you, what I love about that story, I mean, I just love the image of just lying there as your karma assaults you and have the Guru literally lying over you. And the trees are falling all around and the lightning and the thunderstorm. But, I mean, it's about as um, graphic an illustration is how the Guru takes our karma. They didn't describe that um, Babaji was struck by lightning, but the cool cloud protected the disciple. But who knows? It's just that it can. It still comes. The karma is still there. That's what's the marvelous about the whole story. The karma is still there. All the forces of destruction were happening just right around him, but he was in the aura of protection of the guru. I mean, I think we just have no idea. Um, how God protects the devotee. Swamiji has written it up in a couple of places. He wrote it in The Path and he wrote it in this little pamphlet called The New Dispensation. But God protects the devotee from unnecessary karma would be the way to put it. Necessary karma, he, he doesn't want to spare you. 
if it's, if it's necessary for your spiritual growth, uh, why would he? He would be eager to give it to you. But unnecessary karma that's just left over, that's not going to take you forward, but just going to distract you and exhaust you, um, then he can do it for you. And also in this one, you know, this, uh, what a magnificent guru-disciple story. Just uh, how Babaji got Shankaracharya's attention. It might even do more than distract and exhaust you. It might kill you. Yeah, and, you take know, your... Then you have to go on to the next lifetime to deal with it. Yeah, well, that's distracting and exhausting is to die. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. I just look at my own life and I can cite a few instances in it uh, where I had no business whatsoever being spared, and I was. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Oh, my, my. Well, let's take a little short break, and then we'll come back. We, we just took a break, and we had a little discussion about DNA. I have to start with a complete and total acceptance that I know nothing. And the only reason I get involved in this discussion is I've had this discussion with other people where they try to express to me that there's something more powerful than the destiny of the soul. And to me, that's an important point of Master's teachings, that everything emanates from the destiny of the soul. Um, I was, it was being explained to me that Dr. Peter, who's the physician at Ananda Village and a, a, a brilliant man on many levels, has given very interesting classes about the extremely subtle nature of DNA and how it, it can shift and how it's not really such a fixed reality. But what we're talking about is that, you know, matter is only energy and the energy can be shifted. And I, I can't dispute any about, of that or even want to because I, I, it's not my field of expertise. But I just, I keep one simple thought clear, which is there's nothing in the material world that the material world does not dictate the spiritual world. The spiritual world dictates the material. And there's this other fact, which it's hard, it's hard for me to really get, but it's, you, you go when you expand into higher and higher states of awareness, you don't, you don't gap. There's no, there's no like chasm that you jump over. You, you blow up like a balloon and you just begin to encompass ever more subtle realities. And, as people are exploring the physical world, uh, they're expanding their awareness, and then that awareness becomes more and more subtle, and then we begin to get to this uh, transition zone, I was calling it, between um, matter and energy. And DNA, apparently, is one of those transition zones because it's partly physical, it's partly energy. What is it responding to? What's so fascinating, you see, is how from the West we've gone from the most concrete and that, that exact study keeps leading us to this very, very subtle. And from the other side, the eastern or the interior side, you start with internal um, uh, uh, ex exploration and you gradually begin to understand the material world. There's, uh, I think it's in Puru's book. Oh, no, it's in, it's in the book that Purushottama has written. It's not published yet. But he, he was talking about how... Um, the founders of the Theosophy Society, Ledbetter, and maybe it's Annie Besant, but these two Western people, or I believe they were Western, um, did all these meditation experiments, and then they drew what they saw, and it was atoms and molecules and all kinds of specific perceptions of the subtle, subtle physical realities that weren't verified for decades, but they saw them. 
because they got more and more subtle in their understanding. So there's no, there's no barrier, there's no uh, dividing line between the material and the spiritual world. It's all just an energy universe vibrating on many different levels. So when you get to DNA and the, spir- the, the non-physical side is filtering through that to manifest, it's all very consistent. But everything is uh, run <laughs> from the superconscious level. That, and that's, that is the point. Uh, philosophically because some people imagine that their lives are run by the material plane who I am, who I was born what kind of a body I have what ethnic ethnicity I am or just that we're animals coming up we're not we're purely spiritual manifesting that makes a huge difference because if you're purely spiritual manifesting which is what we are then we are already all we have to do is improve our knowing we don't have to become something. We don't have to be redeemed. We don't have to have, you know, it's not like we're inherently sinful or, or originally animals or anything. I heard Swami remark that somebody insisted to him that we're all just animals who've just learned to wear clothes and speak English or whatever language we speak. Swami's final response to that man was he said, well, speak for yourself. <laughs> because it, it's a very dark and depressing way to be. And so I, I, I always resist. Um, but I don't mean to resist to the point of ignorance. You know, it's interesting, Swamiji, um, taught, when he was getting interested in crystals, and the man named Marcel Vogel, who was a big pioneer with crystals, he was from um, the Palo Alto area. He was, employed, he was employed by IBM to think. He had a job. And it, he, they paid him a salary. And he was asked to do nothing but think. But whatever he created, they owned. So it was a perfect system for everyone. And he, he apparently did a lot of really good work for them, and then he was just supported to, they were his patron. But he did a lot with crystals, and he introduced Swami Kriyananda to all those crystals a long time ago. And Swami started talking about them with Marcel, and they, as the sort of, Swami described them as the transition point between matter and energy. Because they were physical, but they but but they also had this energetic component, and so it was it was kind of like well they were a, a energy coming of matter coming to life is what he meant by that. It was the beginning of matter coming to life, coming to self awareness, and that's what, that was consistent with Master saying that he remembered back to being a diamond, and that's what a diamond is is a crystal, and that was he traced his individuality as starting, seemingly starting, at the level of a crystal. Um, many years ago, Swami went to Paris. He's gone to Paris often, but many years ago, when he went to Paris, there was some exhibit of giant crystals. You know, crystals as big as small cars and so on. And he said he, he spent quite a lot of time in that exhibit meditating there, and he said he felt very distinctly that he was in the presence of conscious beings. But conscious beings who were not quite like us. <laughs> and, you know, it was really, he said it was a very enjoyable consciousness. But it was definitely a living presence. He was not with inert things. I've, I've seen films, maybe you've seen it, of somewhere in Mexico, in this, I, some kind of a mine. I'm not sure what, whether they mine silver or what they mine down there. But it's inside this mountain. And they have drained the water out of the mountain in order to get in there 
to get the metal that they're getting. And in draining the water out of the mountain, they have uncovered this, this enormous cavern with, with crystals, of, crystals as big as buildings. And it's way underground, and it's like 120 degrees in there for some reason that I don't understand, maybe because it's so deep. It's, it's really worth looking at. And you see these people go into this room, and, you know, the crystals are... And they look just like little crystals you have at East-West, you know, that some little healer will hold in his hand, except that they're, you know, as big as a house. Gorgeous, just all tumbled and perfect and... What a feeling that must be. And they're just watching it. They had pictures in National Geographic. I saw them there too. You just, you can, you can feel somebody's there. And who knows how long they've been growing inside that mountain. And then somebody busted in there and found them. I mean, there's no way to, you can hardly go in. That You have to wear all these protective clothing because of the heat. And, but fascinating, isn't it? Quite an interesting world. Okay. I just needed to correct about DNA and whatever awful errors I've made, please forgive me. I'm, I'm very well educated in a very narrow, very narrow band. <laughs> but there's everything else outside of it is not my strong suit. Okay, shall we go on? Number 216. The Master told us that when he first came to Sri Yukteswar's ashram, he would keep his mind and gaze focused at the point between the eyebrows as much as possible. If you want to make very rapid progress on the spiritual path, he used to tell us, keep your mind always centered there. Swami says, this practice must be joined to, however, and supported by the heart's devotion. For concentration at the spiritual eye, which is known as the Agnya Chakra, develops great willpower, but can also make one ruthless if it isn't combined with the heart's love. When willpower is combined with love, great joy is the consequence. Swami had used that word ruthless once before in this. I mean, I've heard him make that very comment. I was trying to think about why that would happen. You know, if you... And it, it's, a, it's general advice on the spiritual path, even though it's specifically related to that particular practice. If you get too much willpower, especially if you get impersonal kind of willpower, where you just, you know, the, the concentration on the spiritual eye um, takes you out of ordinary human sympathy and out of ordinary human action, interaction. And it can also make you um, you, you, you can lose touch with ordinary human feelings. You, you can just sort of forget that people have soft hearts or, or tender um, energies. and You can just sort of have this idea that there's no other reality except this single reality that you can see. And um, that can be very dangerous. You can, you can inadvertently cause a great deal of harm. That's where the word ruthless comes from. You just don't, um, I mean, you can become, ruthless implies that you positively use that energy in an egoic-based negative way, but you can also inadvertently uh, become too concerned about power and not enough concerned about um, everything else. So combining it with the heart's devotion so that we have this, uh, 
relationship to all that is. I, I, the phrase that, that Swami has in the Festival of Light in several different places always comes back to me. You are a part of all that is. We are a part of a greater reality. Those, those phrases are exceedingly key to our spiritual path. And if we are a part of that, um, you know, loving it, nurturing it, taking care of it, um, would be the natural out, outgrowth of, growth of that. You don't, you, you take care of your hand because it's part of you. you. You live in your own thoughts because it's part of you. So what separates us from other people and causes us to act as if their welfare um, doesn't matter to us is when we don't identify with them, when we don't love them, when we don't recognize our affinity. So this is the, the combination of the power that comes from concentration here, using it to draw, using that power to open the heart. But he also says joy. Um, someone asked Swami once, what is the sign of being in tune? He says joy. And when someone asked how much discipline is enough discipline, Swami said that which you can do with joy. It's a very important, especially on our path, it's a, a very important aspect of how we measure our spiritual life is not by power, but by freedom, and that freedom expressing itself as an untouchable joy. Um, commentaries on <clears throat> Patanjali. Uh, there's somewhere in there where he says it's a really good idea to practice that um, discipline of concentrating and keeping your energy at the point between the eyebrows. He says immediately thereafter that it's uh, really a great idea to bring um, uh, your heart's uh, feelings up to that point. And then he says somewhere, and if you can't do both at the same time, keep it here. But he says the best way to do it, and it, it, it jives with what you're saying right now, is to uh, bring the heart's energy up while you're concentrating here. Then you've got a whole, the whole package together. And it's also he wants us to truly understand that without devotion, none of it will really take us where we want to go. And that's Sri Yukteswar's statement at the end of the Holy Science. We don't have to fear as much either. No, not if we're balanced. But it, he, he warns us. It's, it's a, because you don't fall into something like that um, from, from Tuesday to Wednesday. Uh, you, you move in, in a direction like that a quarter inch at a time. And that's, that's, why, that's why delusion is insidious. If it were, that's why it has power. If it were just today I'm fine and tomorrow I'm tempted, it's not like that. It's more like we make one little decision, we make another little decision, we make another. When we were in such a controversy with the board of directors of Self-Realization Fellowship for all those years, here are all these wonderful disciples of Master who who have very good karma and are very devoted, and they suddenly were behaving in ways that were not admirable. And I, I, I would try to ask myself, how did they end up like that? And they got there a quarter of an inch at a time. You make one small decision on one basis, and then you support that decision, and then you support that decision. So what Swami wants us to understand is, um, you can find yourself somewhere where you don't want to be, and you, have to, you just have to watch. Because he, he knows the temptation that certain personality types will feel in this. And so he wants to make sure that we have a... And we can't just say, oh, I'm not, that's not going to happen to me. It can happen to anybody. And you do it 
as I said, you don't recognize it when it's happening. I, that, my, that whole experience that I had with um, the SRF board of directors, I mean, I've always felt, I felt very sympathetic to them. I, I stood up very strongly against what they were doing, but I could understand it. I could understand how one thing leads to another, and pretty soon you're not where you want to be. And, I mean, that's the, that's the razor's edge of the spiritual path. You, you justify this for one small reason, and then once you're there, you can justify this for another small reason, and every reason is small until the, the way back just looks like a chasm and you don't know how to get back across it. It happens all the time in all sorts of ways in our spiritual life. And it, it has to be Satanist. Maya is very tricky. If Maya were not so tricky, it would be a whole lot easier. My, my. All right. Number 217. During my boyhood, the Master told us, My family moved for a time to a rough neighborhood. One day about 50 boys ganged up on me. Swami has a footnote here. This number was lessened to 15 in the account that appeared in my book, Stories of Mukunda. Laurie Pratt, who is Taramata, the editor, told me 50 is unrealistic. (laughs) This little volume was first published by Self-Realization Fellowship. I had written it as a Christmas present for the monks. Tara may have been right. Fifty, however, is the number I heard the Master state. I have no wish to argue the point. It's possible that I heard incorrectly. There's a lot of people in India. (laughs) Fifty is still a lot of boys. But who knows? Maybe the whole school came out after him. You just don't know. Or it was fifteen. Swami had to account for the discrepancy because other people will say, why did Swami change it? So anyway... One day about, fi- about 50 boys ganged up on me. We will kill you, they cried, emboldened by their own numbers. I backed up against a tree facing them and cried out with great ferocity. Yes, cowards, in such numbers you can surely succeed. Woe betide the first one of you, however, who dares to approach me. I spoke with so much power that they all hesitated. The ringleader then said, It's all right, Makunda, we were only testing you. Let us be friends. If friendship is what you want, I said, you have it already. And so the crisis passed. Oh my goodness. You know, it's interesting to me, when Swami was writing The Path, which he wrote, you know, he wrote a chapter at a time as a book is written, how many boyhood stories he tells of bullies and standing up to bullies and fights and being, you know, having to fight. And I thought, it's not, you know, it's not by accident. It's just that there's this, this battle, and boys more than girls, but boys growing up often really just fight with each other. And it's just, it's the way they do it. And Swami even speaks with um, positive regard to the fact that when he went to the school in England, they had a system. If you had an argument with someone, you put on boxing gloves and you went into a ring and you actually just punched it out. And he said even the fact that you had to delay and organize it, but nonetheless, it was a boys' school, and that's how they dealt with it, that that physicality and that necessity to struggle physically with one another. I, I thought really often about how much there was of that in Swami's book. And I, I think of it sometimes because I, at other times in my life I've been, had friends who were raising sons, and sometimes they would make this effort 
to have their boys not be boys. And I, I would say, you know, it's like, this is so fundamental, seemingly, to the, to the male character that you don't necessarily serve because a lot of these very exuberant boys is what makes them powerful men later on. And Master, too, has a lot of stories of standing up to bullies. And it, 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 nobody likes it. And God knows, you know, in our school we don't allow bullying and so on like that. But it seems to be a fact of life. And it doesn't serve us to just pretend it's not true. Boys pick up weapons. And there's this wonderful story that Swami tells about a, 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 a young boy who lived at, at Mount Washington. He was being raised by a single mother and she was alarmed by his um, warrior-like interest. And uh, he was playing war somehow in the halls of Mount Washington. I can't remember exactly how it went, but there was some dismay among the women about what he was doing. But Master called him in and sort of asked him what he was doing, and he told Master that he was protecting Master from the enemies who might come and get him. And then Master said to him, well, in that case, you better stand closer to me. (laughs) And then he kept the boy, you know, really close to him as his bodyguard, and the boy was his bodyguard the whole time. And so he just saw that there was a noble impulse behind this and that it should be fostered rather than thwarted. Because if if that's how the child is going to express his strength, you can't tell him you shouldn't express your strength That's if that's the impulse that's coming through him. It's, it's complicated. And I'm not sure that just not letting little boys, they'll just make weapons out of sticks. It's, it's so, you can, as I say, you can rail against it, but it's very interesting the, the masculine need to protect and conquer. It's just, it's there. You just see it. And it's a fine quality. Master was a warrior, after all, many different times. And if we, if we don't have that ability, if we don't have Arjuna, if we don't have the ability to, to you know, raise our bow and fight, um, we lose a great deal spiritually. So it has to be elevated and redirected, but it can't just be... Um, disdained or thwarted. Anyway, it's, it was very interesting. So he tells us, as he does, there's many stories in stories of Makunda and in other places, standing up to bullies. Okay, one more, number 218. I used to, as a boy, meditate in many places in that underground chamber of the Benares temple I told you about. Remember where he slipped through that little opening? It makes me claustrophobic just to think about it. I told you about in graveyards, on the hot sand, in full sunlight, on the beach at Puri, in water up to my neck. These are all places he would seek out to, to uh, meditate. In water up to my neck, chanting, and finally, of course, in my little attic room at Four Garpar Road. I didn't go to many temples after my mother's death. From then on, my devotion turned more inward. That's a very poignant statement, isn't it? One day a group of friends, I was just thinking about that, you know, sometimes um, when you have great sorrow, it just causes you to be uninterested in the world. Vairagya sets in, a positive vairagya. But you could see him as a happy little boy with his beautiful loving mother who was so saintly and the two of them, you know, did so many spiritual things together and then she's taken out of his life. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, he understands, I mean, in the Leela that he was playing, that this life is not 
this world is not satisfying. And then all of a sudden, everything about it, he just pulls back from it. I mean, that's what happens to us. I know, was it in, in Ramakrishna's life? Or, I don't remember exactly, but you know, the, the, my wife left me, my business has collapsed, my children are gone, I want to be a monk. <laughs> You're not renouncing the world, the world has renounced you. But uh, the other side of it is, appropriately, when you have certain real serious blows to your heart, it makes you realize, what was I ever thinking? Whatever made me think that I was really going to um, find a comfortable spot here? So it's interesting that even Master mentions that. I didn't go to many temples after my mother's death. From then on, my devotion turned inward. At least that's how I read it. Because he himself writes about how um, painful that death was for him. One day a group of friends came and said they'd found a Kali temple we hadn't known about not far from where I lived. Knowing of my devotion to Kali, they were certain I'd be eager to go with them. But I replied, you all go. I'll stay home this evening. They went and offered formal worship to the image of Kali. Meanwhile, I called to her in my little attic room and she appeared to me, smiling radiantly with infinite love. Oh my, my. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Number 219. I underwent many disciplines as a boy so as to get a feeling for different spiritual disciplines. For a while I even went about with a begging bowl, not actually begging from people, but holding out my bowl to them to give them a chance to share with others in God's name if they so desired. Anything I received from them I gave away to the needy. It reminds you just a little bit of Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was much more total in it in that he followed all the different paths and really did the sadness. But you can see, you have this, this picture of Master as a child. I mean, what, what kind of a consciousness did he have? And he decides, Swami, there's that story, is it in stories of Mukunda whenever Master ate the, uh, yeah. the, the putrid rice? A funny story was told to me by Dayanand, who did some editing for Swami, how when the original version of that, Swami said that Master picked up a handful of the putrid rice and ate it with relish. And Dayanand wrote back, ketchup, mustard, (laughs) pickles. (laughs) Swami laughed with enthusiasm or with gusto. He changed the word because it means so many different things. But uh, still... The, the picture of him is always just looking at the life around him and asking himself, how can, he, uh, how can he go deeper in the moment? How can he overcome more of what holds him back? How can he embrace more potential? How can he face into whatever limitations he might have? I mean, imagine there would be a certain pride in not standing there with a begging bowl. Imagine just holding it out and having people put their leftovers into it or something like that. You have in the life of St. Francis where he had been the son of the richest man in town and he was the one who was always offering largesse. And then the story of Francis is so amazing because he didn't leave home. He just, he just went out of his house, lived in the woods like a, 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 a ragamuffin and then came back and stood outside the doors of, the, of all the people who knew him. And here he was, in just in tatters, 
holding out, and then whatever slop they gave him, he went by the side of the road and ate it. I mean, it sounds uh, romantic when you think about it, but just even the idea of just standing there with all those people around him. So Master's doing the same thing. He says, why should I be too proud to do this? But he also says it differently. Giving people the opportunity to give in God's name if they chose. So which side of it was Master on? What was he trying to... Was he trying to inspire them to be more generous? Was he trying to help himself be more humble? You don't really know. Well, interesting. Okay, that will be it for tonight. So we went from... 2.14 through 2.19.